Good morning. Welcome to uh, Indelible Grace Church. My name is Wade, and uh, happy 4th of July. Um, uh, one of the, one of the uh, principles that we see in the Declaration of Independence is um, there's this uh, idea of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And um, I think that as residents and citizens of America, uh, perhaps we've experienced that. Um, I'm thankful that uh, I live where I do. Um, I'm thankful for this country. But do you know what is better than life? Jesus. And do you know what is better than liberty? Jesus is. And do you know what is better than happiness? Jesus. And if we are Christ followers, uh, it's okay if we don't feel at home here in America. You may be citizens, uh, you may be able to notice all the flaws and imperfections of this country, um, and yet you can still thank God that we are what we are, and you can say, my hope is not here in this country. My citizenship is not ultimately as an American citizen, but as a citizen of heaven. So we can celebrate the 4th of July. We can be thankful for our country. Thank God for this country. Um, but thank God that this is not it for us. So uh, maybe just something for us to consider as we uh, continue on through the day. And uh, we're going to look at the word of God right now. And we're going through the book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy is a collection of Moses's speech to the Israelites as they look forward to the promised land. Uh, two weeks ago, Pastor John, he talked about the, Moses' words to the Israelites about obeying the Lord. They were to keep the statutes and rules that God had for them. And they were to teach the next generation the same thing. And today's passage in Deuteronomy 4 is a continuation of his words. And today we're going to talk about this warning uh, against idolatry. Idolatry. This is not... This passage isn't primarily about idolatry, though. This passage today before us is ultimately about the relationship that God established with the Israelites before, after they were rescued from slavery from the land of Egypt. And I want us to approach the text with this in mind. Not idolatry, primarily, but primarily about the relationship with the Lord. When we come to worship God on Sundays, we don't... When we sing the songs and when we hear the word, we're, it's not ultimately so that we'll live a certain way. It's not that we'll be better informed or that we'll be more connected to other people in the church. Uh, these things are, of course, good and necessary. But central to what we do today here on Sunday and central to everything that we do as a church is that God will be worshipped and that he will be honored by the creatures that he created to know him. This is about relationship with our covenant God. What is the chief end of man? The first question of the Westminster Confession. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To enjoy God forever. So as we listen to the word in Deuteronomy... Um, my hope and prayer is that we'll know God in this way, that we'll know God as our loving Father, as the source of all delight and joy. And when we know him like that, then God is glorified. So turn with me to your bulletins or your Bibles. Today's text is in Deuteronomy 4, verses 11 through 24. And this is Moses speaking. 
And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you the statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not, cro- should not cross the Jordan, and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. This is the word of God. My objective for us this morning is to understand what it means to live within the covenant that God has made with his people. God speaks of a covenant or Moses speaks of a covenant in today's passage. Uh, another phrase for covenants is relationship boundaries, the boundaries within which you live with someone in a relationship. And how are we as God's people to live? There are many ways to approach this question and many ways that we can answer. Uh, today, I want us to think in terms of idolatry, as I mentioned earlier, and how that relates to how we relate to God. So there are three themes in today's text that I want us to look at this morning. There's idolatry, there is jealousy and the fire of God. And these make up the three points in your bulletin. Number one, the idolatry of man. Number two, the jealousy of God. And number three, the fire of God. Our first point, the idolatry of man. Um, Let me begin by asking you a question. Have you ever been asked what your ideal romantic partner would look like. If you've gone through the dating process, uh, you've thought about this quite a bit, I'm sure. And what you've thought is this. You want someone who is perhaps funny, perhaps attractive in a certain way, perhaps someone who's smart, perhaps someone who has certain hobbies and interests. You want them to look a certain way. You want them to live a certain type of lifestyle. You want a certain personality type, and you hope that the ideal 
person, the ideal man or woman that you have in your mind, that you'll be able to make a connection with them somehow. What does your ideal romantic partner look like? Now, let me take this question a step further. What would your ideal deity look like? If you could design your own God, what would this God look like? Perhaps this God is heavy on love and acceptance. Or perhaps this God is, uh, has, has an emphasis on equity and justice. Perhaps this God really loves fun times. Perhaps this God is fill in the blank. What would your ideal deity look like? Let me suggest this, that whatever God you have in your mind probably reflects yourself. This God suits your preferences and your desires. This God is, is designed in a way that your life might be fulfilled in the way that you want. What does your ideal God look like? This is not a hypothetical question because you and, you and I ask ourselves this question all the time, whether or not we know it. We think of things to give our time and attention to. We find things to wrap our, our lives around. And even for those of us who, who call ourselves Christians, those of us who um, follow Jesus, this is something that we still struggle with. John Calvin has this famous quote. He says that the human heart is an idol factory, constantly churning out things for us to worship. And here is a factory of idols. All of us were made to worship something or someone. We all need something to, that we look up to, to, that gives us meaning and purpose, something that will make us feel safe and protected, something to satisfy our desires. And we're always on a quest to find those things or those people who we think are, is, are going to meet those needs. And this is the problem that the Israelites were facing in today's passage. That John Calvin's statement about the idol factory, that this is something that applied to them. If you look at the Old Testament, something that the Israelites constantly struggled with, something that they constantly fought or perhaps didn't fight, was this desire to find something to set their eyes on, something that to, to fulfill them, something that would guide them. They looked to human rulers to govern them. They, they made literal statues to worship, constantly turning their backs on God. They were constantly tempted to worship something other than Yahweh, the God who rescued them from slavery in Egypt. This is the problem for the Israelites in Deuteronomy 4. And this is the problem that we face today. We build up idols. We make things idols. We find idols to worship. And this is the reason why Moses warns the Israelites here in today's passage. And this is also a warning for us. We all struggle with idolatry. And let me just uh, put some um, some words to help us understand what, def what idolatry is, uh, a definition of idolatry. Um, an idol is anything that's, that takes the place of God in our lives. And therefore, idolatry is given, giving someone or something the time and attention and focus and devotion 
that rightfully belongs to God and God alone. And perhaps you may not believe in God. And if you don't, I'm so glad that you're here with us, that you're listening. If you don't believe in God or if you don't acknowledge God as the one who controls your life, you can think of an idol as, as the thing that determines your actions and your desires and your trajectory in life. You too have an idol. For the Israelites, Moses points out that these are carved images. These are images that represent creatures, perhaps humans, perhaps animals, perhaps the objects in the sky. And for those of us in modern times, it may not be carved images. It could be something like money or security or your children, or a partner, or marriage, or your reputation, or a hobby, or some type of entertainment. These are all idols that we look toward. And one of the things that makes idolatry so difficult to pin down in our hearts is is the fact that most of the time the things that we idolize, the things that we, we kind of give a place in our hearts to, most of the time, these are good things. It's good for you to care about the education of your children. It's good for you to be concerned about your physical health. It's good to practice good financial hygiene. It's good to have interests. It's good to desire a life partner. These are all good things. And this is what makes idolatry so insidious in our lives. It may never be a statue in our face that we can look at. And yet we're still tempted to worship something other than God. Paul Tripp says this of idolatry. Idolatry isn't just worship of bad things. No, the desire for even a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a heart-ruling thing. So let's consider this. What rules your heart? What rules your heart? What are you willing to sacrifice for? What are you willing to make compromises for? What captures your attention most what do you want more than anything what do you dream of having what rules your heart because something has to rule it as we look at the text We're told the problem of idolatry. There are two verses I want us to look at. Verse 16 and verses 19. First, verse 16. Moses says this, Beware lest you act corruptly. Beware lest you act corruptly. Corruption means that your center is thrown off. Did you know that there is a gravity that holds everything in your life together? Corruption means that that gravity is distorted. There's an internal compass that guides our movements and that is broken when you worship an idol. 
when you worship an idol, your view of yourself and your view of other people and your view of God is distorted. To be fully human, to live as God intended, is to live according to God's design for us. And therefore, idolatry is a dehumanizing thing. Every time you give your attention, every time you give your devotion and loyalty to something other than God, you are dehumanizing yourself. You're corrupted. There's something else that idolatry does. Verse 19. Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and uh, further on in the statements that you be drawn away and bow down and serve these things that you idolize. To worship an idol means that we're pulled from God's intent from us. We bow down, we give our allegiance to things that will ultimately disappoint us, things that will ultimately destroy us. We serve them, Moses says. We give of ourselves until there's hardly anything left of us. If you look at verse 23, there's a contrast. There's idolatry and then there's the covenant that the Israelites have with God. The implication is that if you're not in covenant with God, then you're in covenant with an idol. You're always in covenant with something, whether it be your creator or whether it be with a created thing. And the idol will always demand far more of you than it gives. I mentioned earlier that we should be thinking of this text not in terms of idolatry primarily, but in terms of relationship. And here is where we get the context of this passage. If you look at verses 11 through 14, Moses refers to the giving of the Ten Commandments. Uh, We've gone over the Ten Commandments in a sermon series years ago. And... Um, what we learned is this, that the Ten Commandments were not just a list of rules to keep. The commandments that God has given his people, it's not a way to control his people, but it's ultimately a gift to his people. The commandments tell us what matters to God. And this is what it means to be in a relationship with God. God sets these markers, these boundaries on what it means to live in relationship with him. And this is why the first commandment is that the Israelites and the people of God are not to have any gods before them. So Moses is reminding them, remember the Ten Commandments. And he's saying, remember this, that God initiated a relationship with you. And this is the idea of covenant. Covenant means that God will not abandon his people. But it also means that there is a way to live in the context of that covenant. And here today, and here in Deuteronomy 4, we're told this, that there cannot be any idols that take the place that belongs only to God. And this is why idolatry matters. This is why we're, gonna, we're spending this time to talk about idolatry. Idolatry matters because God matters. Not just in some abstract sense. God matters 
we're not just saying that. It's not just a concept. We're saying this because God really does matter. God matters to you. God matters to me because our very lives are contingent, are contingent upon him. You exist because God willed you to exist. You're alive today because God was merciful to you. And if we don't give God the proper place in our lives, we are going to disintegrate. And God looks at our idolatry and he says that he will not let something else threaten his relationship with us. This is a warning. This is a loving warning to us. And this brings us to our next point, the jealousy of God. Look to the end of the passage. And how does God identify himself? He says, I am a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. This is um, a bit strange, isn't it? Because we often think of jealousy in negative terms. If we refer to someone as jealous, we usually mean that in a negative sense. And we're hesitant to admit that of ourselves, perhaps. Maybe we're a little bit embarrassed to say that we are a jealous person. Richard Dawkins thinks so. Richard, Richard Dawkins is the famous uh, atheist biologist, and he wrote this about God. If you look at his, uh, his career, he's written a lot of um, material against the idea of God, a lot of material against religion. And this is what he writes in one of his books. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. He's jealous and proud of it. And maybe Richard Dawkins is thinking of this verse in Deuteronomy. And perhaps the God of the Bible would be quite an unpleasant character if Richard Dawkins is right. But Richard Dawkins is not right. He has a deeply incorrect understanding of jealousy as it relates to God. When we think of jealousy, we there's two ways to think about it. Uh, the first is this. There's the self-absorbed kind of jealousy. You envy someone because you want something that they have. You wish you had it for yourself. And if you can't have it, then you don't want them to have it either. If someone has the type of life that you want, you get angry at them perhaps. You might resent them for having that thing. It's hard for you to acknowledge that perhaps they deserve it. And this is jealousy. This is the self-absorbed, self-centered type of jealousy. But there's another type of jealousy. It's a jealousy that comes from a deep love for the object of your jealousy. If you have children, you're jealous for them. If you have a healthy relationship with them, your love for them is kindled. You may even get angry because their safety is being threatened by something that they're doing. Or if a lover is being wooed by someone else, you get jealous because of your committed love to him or her. In both these cases, you want the best for your object, uh, for the object of your jealousy. You want to protect them. You want them to be safe. You want the best for them. And your anger is kindled when they don't get the best. And this is the jealousy that God speaks of. When God says that he's a jealous God in this passage, he's saying this, that he sees his people being tempted by idols. 
he sees that his people are dehumanizing themselves by worshiping something other than him. He sees that they're making themselves servants of terrible masters that will ultimately destroy them. And God's anger, his love is aroused because of that. And this is why God hates idolatry. Not only because it dishonors him, which it does, but also because it destroys us. And this is how God is jealous for you. Did you know that God loves you? Not in some abstract sense. God loves you. No one will care for you like he does. No one knows you like he does. No one desires the best for you like he does. God calls you his own. You belong to him. And the great hope of your life rests on that fact. It rests on the fact that you belong to him. And he loves the things that belong to him. And that means this, that you can know him. It's really interesting to note how God compares himself to idols in this text. Um, The idols, they have forms, but they cannot speak. God has no form, but he speaks. Um, I have a a couple scenarios to help us understand what what, what that looks like. Um, Imagine you have a, a smartphone. You all have a relationship with your smartphone. Now imagine you're, you're, you're holding your smartphone or your phone, whatever. Um, and imagine in the first scenario that you're on a video call with someone. And let's pretend that this person is the most stunningly handsome person you've ever seen in your whole life. Or the most exquisitely beautiful person that you've ever laid eyes on. You've never seen anyone more perfect and beautiful But this person is not talking. He or she is not communicating with you in any way. Not by words, not by physical gestures, not by body language. All you can do is look at that image of this person. And no matter how much you talk to them, no matter how much you speak to them, there is no response. That's the first scenario. The second scenario is this. There's someone else on the other end of the line, but you can't see them because their phone doesn't have a camera. But he or she talks to you. This person responds to everything that you say. This person may challenge you. They may frustrate you at times. They bear their soul to you in conversations. And they're a safe place for you to share your own soul. It's like they have a key that unlocks your your mind and your heart. So you can share the deepest parts of yourself with this person. This person feels like home. And tell me, given these two options, which one would you rather have a relationship with? Which one would you rather speak to? The problem, our text tells us, is that the Israelites, and us as well, 
will settle for the first scenario. We'd rather have a relationship with something or someone that grabs our attention and takes our energies, but who doesn't really give us anything. We'd rather have that than open ourselves up to a person who makes himself known to us and invites us to know him intimately. Um, I read this really insightful comment in one of the commentaries uh, that, that, that I was looking at before, as I was preparing this uh, message. And um, it was a fantastic uh, observation, which is this, that the Israelites, they're, they're headed to the promised land, but their biggest enemy is not the Canaanites. The biggest enemy of the people of God is their own hearts. Our own hearts are our biggest enemy. And we always choose idolatry, if not for the grace of God. Idolatry doesn't allow for a real relationship, but to worship God does. And our great hope lies in that fact. Look at verses 20 and 21. There's a word that's used in both verses. Um, If you look at the text, there's this word inheritance in verse 20 and inheritance again in verse 21. The Hebrew word for inheritance is nahala, nahala. And this word is used to communicate something to us. It's to communicate to us this, that God is possessive of us in a jealous way. God, it, God rescued the Israelites from Egypt so that they would be his. The people of God are the inheritance of God. And because they are his inheritance, they shall inherit something. Canaan, the promised land, belongs to them because they belong to God. And here's the significance of these two verses. Because God is jealous for them, he makes them his inheritance by taking them out of the land of slavery. And he tells them that their inheritance is the land of freedom. Their possession of the land, look at verse 14, this is the wording. Their possession of the land is only possible because they are the possession of God. The hope of the Israelites is a fact that they are possessed by God. The Israelites' only hope of inheriting the land that was promised to them is by recognizing that they are God's inheritance and then living as if that were true. But how often do we live as if that weren't the case? We're still looking at idols. We turn, to, we turn to them again and again because we think that they'll meet the longing in our hearts. We think that the idols that we create or look to, that they will bring us peace, even if it's just for a few moments. And we keep making idols because we don't really believe that God is good and that God is for us and that he loves us. But he is for us. He does love us. God is intensely jealous for your heart and for mine. Because he wants us to experience the best thing. And if you knew this, then you can lay down your idols. We can turn away from these things that will always ultimately disappoint us and disintegrate us. And we can approach God. We can approach God not to study Him, not to philosophize about Him, not to use Him to get what we want, 
but we can approach God to know his heart, to love him and be loved by him. IGC, Indelible Grace Church. Did you know that you are so, so, so loved by God? I think we can acknowledge the truths of this Bible, perhaps. But can you recognize, can you feel in your marrow that you are loved by God? And if you belong to him, he delights in you. God smiles at the thought of you. He sings over you. God wants you. And though it may hurt when he removes the idols from your heart, he will also heal. He will mend. Do you believe this? That you are so deeply, intensely, jealously loved. How can this be? This brings us to our final point, the fire of God. Verse 24, God says that he is a consuming fire. Now consider what fire is. On one hand, it's beautiful. If you've ever looked at a, at a campfire, the flames dance. The way that it illuminates the surrounding scene is beautiful. There are colors that glow in the fire. Fire brings warmth. And on the other hand, fire can be incredibly scary. It can destroy everything that it touches. It can cause untold damage. Remember the fires from last year? You have to be careful with it. And God says this, that he's like that. And when we think of God, we should think beauty and warmth, but we should also think danger and fear. This is God. But your idols are not like that. They may be one, they may be other, but they are not both. Only in the God of today's story can we see these tensions and paradoxes exist. Here is a God who demands absolute obedience. God hates sin. And yet he loves the disobedience. Here is a God who is so beautiful that you can be moved by tears when you think of him. And yet he can be so terrifying that you can be paralyzed by fear when you think about him. Here is a God who will judge you with severity. And yet he gladly accepts you even though you rebel against him. How can this be? There are two passages in the Gospel of Luke that I think help us understand this. And these aren't in your bulletin, but um, I'm going to refer to them. Um, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is walking with his disciples th- toward Jerusalem. And at one point, they're going through a Samaritan village. And the whole village just rejects Jesus and the disciples. And the disciples ask Jesus, 
Lord, do you want us to tell fire to, to come down from heaven and consume them? The disciples are asking them, are asking Jesus, um, should we call down fire to fall on these people that rejected you, Jesus? But Jesus, he says, no, don't think that way. Jesus rebukes them for that thought. And then a few chapters later in Luke, Luke chapter 12, Jesus is speaking. And this is what he says. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So here in the gospel of Luke, in these passages, we see that Jesus, he does not bring fire on the land. And yet he says he's come to cast fire on earth. Do you see what's happening here? In Jesus, the fire of God is fully expressed. And this is the gospel that we have all given ourselves to idols. We've all turned away from God. We've rejected him as the rightful ruler of our lives. We've given ourselves over to these death traps called idols. The consequence is death and the punishment is the fire of God's judgment upon us. This is what we've earned for ourselves Have you ever considered that? The fire is supposed to fall down on you and you're supposed to be destroyed by that fire. And yet on the cross, Jesus received the punishment of our sins, our rebellion in our place. The fire of God's judgment fell on Jesus. Jesus was baptized with fire. Jesus was consumed until every last act of rebellion and idolatry and sin that you ever committed, that I ever committed, Every one of those was paid for. And Jesus was consumed because of that. And what does that mean? It means that you will never be judged for your idolatry. If you repent, if you look to Christ. Because Jesus received that judgment for your sake. Listen to the words from Lamentations 3. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. We are not consumed by the fire. If you are in Christ, you will not be consumed by that fire. But that fire still exists and you can be transformed by that fire. May that be true of us. Will you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that um, our hearts really are idle factories. We love things other than you. And yet you in your great love in your great mercy will remove those idols. And I pray that as you do, that you would turn our hearts toward you. I pray that you would be the one that would give our whole devotion and loyalty and love to God. Make this true of us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.